Hello everybody, and welcome back to this very special episode of The Fourth Leg. Do you know why it's special, normal hosts? Uh, why is it so special, Tell me now. Host? Tell me. Because it's our season two finale! <gasps> I know! What? It's crazy! We started planning this show like a year ago. Like, I, I think the first messages we shared were a year ago. And now we're here, ending our second season, like a crap ton of episodes in. How does it feel? Holy Pretty great, for dang. sure. Holy dang. Holy dang. It's so cool. Oh my gosh. Oh, I think so too. Welcome, listeners, to The Fourth Leg. We're a tabletop gaming show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. If you don't know that by now, why are you listening to the season two finale? Go back and listen to some <laughs> earlier episodes. It's it's for your benefit, really. Go listen to when I was bad at editing. We can reference the Session Zero episode now if you want to start there. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, go listen to the Session Zero episode. I'm sure there will be a reason to. We talk about it incessantly in every other episode. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I mean, it's kind of our cornerstone. Even though, for, for the, uh, I mean, those of you that are interested in the data, it's not even in our top five most listened to episodes. Nope. That's so weird. Like, we reference it the most. Yeah. I don't know. Anywho, <laughs> I blame Lex from Path of Night. Why? Arbitrary reasons. Wildly popular. Yeah. <laughs> how, how dare the popular thing and popular person be popular? How dare? Anywho, uh, again, we're the fourth leg tabletop gaming show all about, you know, giving advice to new GMs and old GMs alike. And today we're going over our fourth installment of our campaign building episodes. Uh, this one being... I guess we'll classify it as like middle to high levels. So this is like your D and D levels twelve through fifteen okay. ish. To to put it in a point of reference for you. Uh, so we're getting into some of the bigger baddies, not like that TikTok people. I mean, maybe some of those too, but we'll get there. Yeah, maybe some of those too if you write your villains well. Go listen to that episode too. <laughs> so many self plugs already. Anyway, we need to start with our fun fact. <laughs> Yes, let's start with a fun fact. What's our fun fact for today? Well, I think my first fun fact is, I think I just heard my cat jump in the sink. Madden! Because <laughs> I just heard the clanging of dishes, and the only place there are dishes to clang together downstairs are in the, in the sink. Well, if the cat got really ambitious, the cat could get into the cabinets, and that's where the real fun would begin. I don't think she's smart enough. <laughs> so our fun fact this week... Our fun fact this week uh, is going to be a little bit uh, less of a, a story about yourself and more of a what are you into right now. Oh, mine's going to turn um, into a story anyway. That's totally funny. It <laughs> always does. That's okay. That's how it tracks with me. So we're going to be talking about what we're playing right now. This could be uh, long-form tabletop games. This could be board games that we're really into, video games. All right, Joe, what are you playing right now? Okay, so I'm going to cover uh, two things really quick. Uh, so most recently, uh, as far as video games, I picked up uh, Triangle Strategy, uh, and I have really been enjoying it. Uh, it really scratches that itch for those games like Final Fantasy Tactics, obviously, uh, Ogre Battle, and Tactics Ogre, where you have kind of like a really interesting, like fun battle system, yeah. but you also have kind of a... like political like oh what are the what is this other country doing like why are they you know why are they here 
plot, which is moving uh, at a pretty decent pace. I'm already at about a third of the way through the story. I think it's interesting that some of the some of the the big choices are like, oh, it's an A or B like mission, and some of them like drastically alter the story, which is cool. Oh, uh, I, this I, sounds really good. I definitely recommend it. Uh, these are the games that I would like SquareSoft to make. They can they can stop worrying about the Marvel's Avengers and stuff. Like, do more games like this because these are the things that you have made in the past that we loved because. There are a bunch of Enix games that are sitting there gathering dust because we haven't really re-released them. I was kind of excited when mm-hmm. they re-released the like the Mana trilogy and the um, mm-hmm. the Saga stuff from Game Boy. Uh, they dug those back up and re-released them for Switch and stuff. So that was that's exciting. Uh, but I, I really like the retro feel, but the kind of modern sensibilities. Yeah, how how does Triangle Strategy play? Is it more like a Final Fantasy Tactics, or is it sim- more similar to like a, I don't know, like an Enchanted Arms or something where there's a set grid that you can move around inside, or is it like you move around the map? It's interesting. So they break it up, like there is a world map, and you can, like, there are set pieces within the world map, but on Final Fantasy Tactics, like, your missions are in a set map. The interesting thing is that several times in the story, you'll get what's called an exploration mode, and you get to kind of wander around a map. You can find items, you can talk to NPCs that will give you information that may assist you in swaying your party, like one way or another, during some of the like the conversation and decision mo- moments. Mm-hmm. Because like if you don't talk to all these people, you're not going to know about this cool thing that might make so and so change their mind when it comes to voting, which is kind of cool. But like the the voting stuff is really interesting. I've really only come to one big decision moment so far and it was like the first like introduction of the of the system but it's mm-hmm. it's pretty cool because you have a you have a good idea of like who's really set in their ways and then like if you these other people would be really easy and these other people are like oh you're gonna have to say exactly the right thing to get them to change their stance is it a permadeath game no like fire emblem Mm-mm. Then I might play it because I'm really bad at strategy games. <laughs> I like Fire Emblem, uh, but I like that it's a little deeper than Fire Emblem because elevation and like backstrikes and stuff do take a like play a part in it. If you have somebody attacking someone who's like directly opposite them, like on the other side of an enemy, like flanking in D and D, the mm-hmm. person opposite you is also going to get a lighter but pretty decent hit as well. And you can do that with people like bowmen as well. So like. You can attack somebody and there's somebody on the opposite side of them. They'll take the opportunity to take the strike, which is cool. Uh, Kelsey, if you wouldn't mind me going next. Go for it. So I actually, uh, mine's going to be pretty short-winded. Uh, I actually just finished up Horizon Zero West. Uh, damn. Horizon Forbidden West. <laughs> the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. To, to, to mash in the titles together. <laughs> I loved it, but. Ooh, there's a what? <laughs> I figured there was a caveat. It had a lot of technical issues, mm-hmm. and it could have been that I'm playing it on PS4, but it was on the brink of an unforgivable amount of Ooh. technical issues, uh, like falling through the map as you leave the room where you just had a major story dialogue. Oh. Like a lot, a lot of them were in main story areas, which is my big thing because, like, side quest things in a game that size, I get it. Mm-hmm. Right, you're not going to be able to get to everything. Mm-hmm. 
you know, whatever. But when you have, like, main quest dialogue, you just get out of a huge cutscene where big revelations happen, mm -hmm. then you leave the room and fall through the map. Ugh, yeah. Come on. On the critical path, yep. Just, oh, yeah. well, here's some jank. Mm -hmm. So, after finishing the game... Athena and I were, were playing through it together, and we saw that they had a QA team of less than 30 people oh! in the credits. And I don't know if that was the entire QA team or if they just didn't credit some of their people, but if that was the entire QA team, oh my god. Yeah. Do yourself a favor and hire more QA people. Yes. Especially for a game <laughs> like, that size. Who? I do QA as my career. I, I do QA with Activision. I won't tell you what title I'm working on, but the title that I'm working on has triple the testers that that game had. Oof. It's an Activision title. It's nothing as big as Horizon Forbidden West. Nothing as anticipated. Mm -hmm. And we have a QA team three times the size. It's insane to me. Yeah. The game was a lot of fun. Very, very well written. I think the world was gorgeous. I think the quests were really interesting and fun, but the technical issues really ruined some key experiences of the game. Yeah. Um. So I, I want to go back after they've patched it up because they released a couple of patches while I was playing it that really did improve quality of life stuff. After they've patched it up, maybe in three or four months, mm -hmm. I'll go back and I'll play through it again. But Yeah, I still need to play the first one. Uh, I've got it. It's definitely on my backlog. It's just one of those... Mm -hmm. Those games I didn't get to get to get to yet. Yeah. They're both fantastic. Uh, I think Forbidden West takes everything that Zero Dawn did really well and improves upon it, which is not something you see a lot in a sequel. Oh. If the technical issues hadn't been there, I would call this game a resounding 10 out of 10. Mm. Wow. Yeah, tech issues but will do that. <laughs> the tech issues uh, were, were not there. Because, mm -hmm. like, literally everything is still as good as Zero Dawn, and then they just add new things that improve the experience in, in mm -hmm. pretty much every facet. Just improved. Yeah. So I, if I gave Zero Dawn a 10 out of 10, it would be a crime for me not to give this one a 10 out of 10, assuming it gets its tech issues fixed. Mm. But right now I'm playing through Kingdom Hearts 3 again. <gasps> Because uh, Athena has never seen them, oh. so we played through the entire series together, and now we're finally finishing it out. <sighs> so that's exciting. Good. Uh, there's also, and you you two already know what this is, but there's there's a new game that I'm getting involved in <gasps> that we'll talk about at the end of the episode. Kelsey, yeah. go ahead and tell us what you're playing right now. So, um, this requires a little backstory, because this is actually a board game that has been out of print for years. Yes, it's one of those. It's one of those stories. So my grandparents, they were the grandparents that were closest to us for <laughs> like the first like chunk of my life before we moved. Uh, so we would end up going to their house to like, you know, spend nights and have them babysit us sometimes whenever stuff happened. But they would have lots of board games and some of these board games were like straight from the 60s and one of the games that they had was a board game called dungeon dice this game has been out of print for ages you can only ever find this on ebay anymore and i have i have this game on my shelf because after Rini and pappy passed away we were going through all of their stuff before the estate sale and i was like the only i only care about a handful of things and one and a few of those things are the board games 
because the board games hold a special place in my heart. And Dungeon Dice was one of those games because the aim of this game, I'll go through the rules briefly because it's a Parker Brothers board game. It's not that hard. Um, mm-hmm. The basic conceit is you are a prisoner in a dungeon and you are trying to dig your way through a tunnel to escape. And there's like each edge of the board is a tunnel and you roll dice to determine how many tunnel cards that you get. And each face on the dice is a different tool. So like there's a pickaxe, there's a ladder, there's all kinds of things. But one of those faces is a guard face and it's a little helmet with little angry eyes. If you roll three of those, your turn ends and you lose whatever tunnel cards that you won during your turn. Uh, that's a pressure luck game. Yeah, it's a pre- mm-hmm. it's a press your luck game. Um, and the objective of the game is to tunnel your way out of the dungeon without getting caught by the guards. It it plays in like less than half an hour. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Let's get into these campaign updates, guys. Heck yeah. Let's do it. This, if I'm understanding correctly, just glancing through Joe's and my own notes, is going to be a, where things get real, like, complex and mind-bendy. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited to hear this. Uh, but in a, a rare twist of fate, I'm going to invite either of you to go first instead of just asking one of you. Ooh. So who wants to kick us off? Uh, well, I I can go because my notes are on an entirely separate app from, like, the episode outline. <laughs> go for it. Okay. Go off. Because uh, I was I was thinking to myself like earlier this week how I would go about levels twelve to fifteen for my campaign because mm-hmm. I up to this point had only planned up to like level ten and honestly I'm not sure that my players and I will reach these particular levels with how infrequently that we meet up but ideally we get to these points because these levels are where their character beats really start to like hit one of the subplots going on is that the sorcerer character her mentor figure has been kidnapped by uh mccavity and Mm -hmm. this section of levels from like levels 12 to 15 for the player characters is right where mccavity starts showing his face and antagonizing the cast and starts being like i know where i kept the man that you care about so much and refuses to tell them anything but this is where he starts to make an appearance and really antagonize everybody this is also about the point where um there's another subplot happening and for the longest time i had trouble with this one because one of my players is playing a druid and the druid and the player are basically like, I'm just here for the, the funsies. I don't have an epic. Yeah, I don't have an epic quest going on right now. And I was like, well, okay, what can I do for you that would have you hooked? And then I remembered a little character beat. Her and her people place huge significance on the true names of things. So the name that she gives everybody is not her real name. It's a nickname that she chose. And I'm like, well, there's another character that has this component that's an NPC, and that is their mentor who's teaching them right now. And so the mentor, what I'm going to have the mentor do is look at this druid and be like, okay, 
I have a true name, and it is very powerful. And if you can find out what it is without my telling you, you'll pass. <laughs> Bet you money this is a Rumpelstiltskin guy. <laughs> is it? Kinda. Uh, they they don't, like, yeah. steal your baby. They could kill you, but <laughs> they won't steal your baby. That That's mm-hmm. a line too far. But no, this is a... Uh, the mentor is an Asimar, uh, specifically an uh, Asimar of death. Okay. Yes. So, uh, because they are an Asimar of death, to know their true name is a huge significant point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the this NPC also has their own plot story going on because their mother, who is also a Asimar of death, has been kidnapped by the big bad endgame of this campaign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so their quest is to find their mother. But nobody knows their mother's true name because she never told anybody. So that's their plot hook. And the players can engage with that however they want to. They can assist, they can go about doing their own thing, they can do whatever it, whatever it is that they want. Mm-hmm. I predict that the tiefling bard character would want to get involved in that in some way, because the tiefling bard is the kind of character that she's like, I want to know what love is. And I'm like, well, that's really broad. <laughs> so are we talking like familial love uh exaltation of the beloved lady which is an aspect of courtly love which is its own thing are we talking like romantic love love for mankind or humanoids more broadly because we're dealing with multiple races here because it's D D. like i'm gonna approach it from like almost like a a familial or even like a found family aspect for her. I'm going to start that way and we'll see if she takes the hook, but there's going to be other hooks that I'm going to leave for the tiefling bard character to investigate and look into some more, possibly some romantic hooks, possibly some other um, love related hooks that she could investigate and look into. Um, Now there there's two characters that have a whole bunch of investigations going on and then there's like mm-hmm. a third who's who's like I who's got her own kind of investigations but more on the investigations on the fields of love. I okay, I have to interject here. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I need I need this bard, whoever the player is. <laughs> I need them to make a playlist of like classic like rock ballads about what love is. As soon as Kelsey <laughs> mentioned this, I, I heard the swell to foreigners. I want to know what love is. I was just oh, like, oh, me too. <laughs> me I th- too. I, I was like, oh. Pretty much everybody who's listening to this podcast also had that musical swell. Yep. Because yep. <laughs> that's where, mine, where my mind went as well. And also, uh, lo- Love Bites. Also, yes. Oh, yeah. So a fantastic yeah. one. And also, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. R.I.P. Meatloaf. Rest in peace, Meatloaf. So other notes that I have, because there's a whole bunch of like investigations, uh, especially since this is set in a celestial university, basically, um, there's going to be some investigations. There's going to be a bunch of research, but also there's going to be bunches of character interactions. And this was something that the players had signed up for when they Mm -hmm. wanted to get the game started was because... 
I had told them, hey, I want to build a world that's like Kingdom Hearts, but not explicitly for Disney worlds. And mm -hmm. they came at me with like the worlds that they wanted to see, the characters they wanted to interact with, and what kind of story hooks they wanted to see, and all these other things. And I was like, okay, good. This is a good base to start with. And with those, that makes coming up with like encounter tables a little easier. So I'm I'm building some encounter tables so that I can like look at my players and be like, roll a D4 for me. And then I don't tell them what it is that they're rolling for. <laughs> <laughs> the fun stuff as a GM. The fun stuff as a the GM. Stuff, I like yeah. I like to do this a lot to my players. I'll be like, I need you to roll a D8. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the, I actually have like tables within tables. So like some some things, it's like, okay, roll a D8. Oh, did you roll a four? Roll a D4. And that breaks into this table. It's not like super duper elaborate, but it's, it's stuff that I've, you know, built up because the world is so freaking huge and mm -hmm. they could go mm -hmm. in so many different directions that I'm like, oh, really, this is like, the dice will help. The dice will help tell the narrative at this point. And that's one of the interesting things about sandbox games and also why I never feel confident with myself running them is that there are so many branching pathways mm -hmm. that you can you know split off to in sandbox games oh, yeah. that it's so important to have firm walls around your play area oh yeah mm -hmm. right uh like everything inside is up to the player but keeping those firm walls in place is something that i'm really really bad at <laughs> so <laughs> the the way that i build games is i build it like a bowling alley mm -hmm. more than anything right like they can fall into the gutter but they're always going to move forward mm -hmm. the players that is yeah so like a gutter ball will always come back around in some way and they'll have another chance to go down a different alley mm -hmm. is the way that I like to think of how I plan games. Mm -hmm. There will always be forward motion. If it doesn't quite go the way that I expect, we can always recycle and go again, you know, but I am fascinated Yeah. <laughs> by the way you put together your games, Kelsey. I could never, I don't have that skill set <laughs> to do that. It's so impressive to me. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoy what I do. <laughs> um, this is... I would hope so. Oh, yeah. You're making a podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting it out in the ether, so, so there's no going back now. Exactly. And hopefully my players are not listening to these episodes. But... <laughs> you guys can listen I, to the I campaigns. I hope they are. So go, come, back, come back in three years. Yeah, exactly. Right. Come back in three oh, years and then give these episodes a listen, and we'll see how much all of this like tracked with what we actually played. <laughs> Because <laughs> I leave a lot of room for, like, improvisations, because improv mm -hmm. is, like, the one of my deep-seated roots. It's what I'm good at. But I'm I'm good at that, and I'm good at, like, keeping my notes somewhat organized for not just the encounter tables, mm -hmm. but also just the characters. Like, if there's any one thing that I've learned about myself from working on comics and being a, a GM since 2016 it's that i have a pretty solid route on how to handle characters and how to role play as them mm -hmm. so yeah. if there's like a particular character that the cast is interacting with i know how to play that character like fairly well uh and the characters can range like in the game that we're playing right now um Abe from Abe's Odyssey has made an appearance and he's one of the more quiet ones that they interact with. And he's like, okay, wait, okay. Did you find your friend? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I like doing the Abe voice. 
Ugh. And like, so good. and there are other characters that are like big and bump bastard because they're seven feet tall and made of solid muscle. I love playing those characters too. The boulder. <laughs> the boulder is going to show you how to thread a sewing machine. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question. Sure. Uh, because you you did talk about like j- juggling a lot of of balls when it comes to characters. Yeah. So do you have like? profiles uh like just kind of like a brief like even just like paragraph or so like to kind of help you like zone back in on characters or like how do you how do you wear a bunch of hats with multiple npcs uh, in potentially rapid succession a good chunk of it is a lot of the characters are characters that i've like been familiar with since i was a teenager so i know them fairly intimately without having to look at notes the only things that i would need to look at for them would be like character stats in case Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the players have to roll like if they have to roll a persuasion versus the the npc's insight for example Mm -hmm. things like that like i would need a little stat block as like shorthand for that and sure. there are a number of characters that I've done that with, and there are some that I've done full-on character sheets for, and those are the characters <laughs> that, like, are basically kind of their babysitters because, you know, they do have the option to, like, leave their celestial university to, like, travel abroad, big air quotes, as it were, into <laughs> other worlds to do their investigations and, again, study abroad <laughs> and find clues <laughs> for their various quests. But... Their instructor doesn't necessarily trust them to go by themselves, so they'll send, like, other NPCs to basically serve as chaperones for their trips. Not all the chaperones stick around. In fact, there's one, Android 13, who who's like, I have something that I gotta take care of, so you go back and do your thing, I'm gonna head in this direction. And then he just pimps off. <laughs> so, like, it really depends from character to character. In defense of their mentor, like... Has anyone ever felt like they could really trust a party of PCs? Yeah, exactly. Because, like, I, I will say I trust this party a little bit better because they did manage to befriend a tiger that was out to attack them. With that said, though, they were talking about, like, kidnapping a minion from the the army of the Big Bad Endgame and... I can tell you this much. My mentor character is not a fan of this idea. Well, they're the bad guys. We can torture them. It's cool. I mean, they're not (laughs) against torturing them. They don't want to bring this minion back home. Because, yeah, they want to keep the Celestial University safe. And so far, the Big Bad Endgame does not know where this is. So that's going to be the mentor's objective in this next like session that we're going to be having which may or may not be soon fingers crossed that it's soon ish uh because we're talking with the group about meeting back up again in person i do need to make just shorthand character blocks um because this is actually something that i've thought about before is just putting together what i call the npc compendium where it's just like a little sketch of a character and a stat block that gives me their six basic stats, and that's about it. Uh, mm-hmm. They might have some per- like proficiencies, but not a ton, and the modifiers are not going to be super-duper high. Kelsey, was there anything else that you wanted to share about your campaign? I mean, at this point, I would just be repeating a lot of the points that I've already talked about. 
The only All big right. caveat is I'm still leaving room for the players to cause chaos, which is going to be inevitable. Always plan for chaos. <laughs> yeah, and I'm also like fully prepared to toss out any notes that I may have prepped ahead of time. Like, I may have some ideas, yeah. but if the characters opt to go in a different direction, I'm totally okay with that. Mm -hmm. Just gonna roll with it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a oh. metaphor with dice. <laughs> Took me a second there. You cheeky fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Save that one for you. Joe, why don't you go ahead and give us an update on the agents of Zodiac? Okay. Uh, so previously, uh, the group had met uh, a young woman calling herself Sybil uh, at the Lakeshore Pyramid. Uh, after dealing with some more of the Asphalt Brigade. So if DEFCON survived the trip, uh, she's likely to be a little more friendly toward them, though she's still uh, very, like, all business and direct. She also hinted, well, she outright said at the end of our last update that she had met the group before. She refuses to say any more uh, until everyone is safe inside the building. Uh, in the event that Defcon didn't manage to make the whole trip, whether he died in the middle of the fight or they just really mistreated him and something bad happened, uh, she's going to be a lot more terse and clit in any kind of like interaction or conversation. Uh, generally talking about how this, you know, this is unexpected or she seems disappointed in their performance. Uh, they may not know much about Sybil, but they'll kind of have to follow along if they want to figure out what it is that DEFCON was bringing or uh, who, what the hell Sybil is actually talking about. So once they kind of like move through the building, it's pretty empty for the most part, but they find themselves inside this very clean white room. Uh, the door will seal behind them and it's gonna they're gonna hear an audible vacuum sound uh, before there is a massive like buzzing noise uh, that fills the room. Like, it's loud. It'll be loud enough to, like, vibrate their hands. Like, you can feel it. And a second, a few seconds after that starts, all the, like, advanced hardware that they're carrying, so cybernetic stuff, high-powered weapons, all that stuff is going to cease to function. Ooh, that's going to suck for any of the player characters that have cybernetic parts. I was, yeah, I was thinking, like, Cyber Eyes or anything like that, but... This could definitely leave the party at a huge disadvantage uh, based on, you know, where they've come from and the kind of things that they have, you know, accrued or dealt with in the past. But uh, Sybil does assure them that for the first time in their lives, they're really and truly safe from prying eyes and ears. Once everyone kind of settles down uh, from the initial shock of, like, losing any kind of, like, hardware access, mm -hmm. uh, Sybil reveals that while she has met them before... She has met their previous selves, uh, which the group doesn't have any memory of, considering that they never checked back in uh, for another memory upload, because they didn't even know what case they were working on at the time. Uh, so she asserts that she's crossed paths, paths with them while they were pursuing DEFCON in the first place, uh, and rather than allowing them to intrude upon his work, which he's completed, uh, she brought them into the fold as part of Typhon. Uh, so Typhon, she explains, is a group of rebellious humans that are living outside of the bubble cities specifically because they're mistrustful of Zodiac. Oh. Uh, so they feel like the AI's uh, like story of the things that led up to the wastelands and the dome cities 
is way too like neat and tidy. Uh, they think that it's been kind of like cleaned up and kind of whitewashed uh, as as history does tend to get by the the people that are in charge. Yeah, that was where my mind was going. <laughs> yep. Uh, so while they don't fault anybody for choosing to live in the cities, mm-hmm. they feel like giving that much to control to a supposedly benevolent overlord is too much to ask. Uh, but they have somehow managed to keep an ear out information for information in various of the cities. Uh, Sybil also claims that the group joined Typhon rather than returning, uh, and they were embarking on a dangerous mission for the for the organization. Uh, she states then that the current agent should be able to help fulfill that goal, but says that they don't need to make that decision right now because she wants them to see something first. Oh, that's such a good ending line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it's it's one of those tropey ones, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but it's a classic. It's always such a good cliffhanger. Yeah, you're like, oh well, uh, but but first yeah. look at this. And I mean, okay, so typically speaking. There are very few exceptions to the rule that I don't really like stories that can be, you know, a lot cleaner if you just communicate, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A lot of these, like, awkward love triangles where people don't really communicate with one another and that's the entire basis of the drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a situation like this where there's obviously something unknown beyond the scope of the players, a line like this one hits so much harder, right? It's like, I want you to see something. Mm-hmm. Because in this world of the unknown, right, of the, like, fantastical, in this case, technological, Mm -hmm. like, it could be anything. Yeah. You don't know what it could be. It's something that you can only experience by seeing it, right? Describing it to you won't help. So it it hits a very particular itch in my brain that I quite enjoy. I, that's one of the, one of the main reasons that I enjoy playing and running role-playing games is to, like, understand more about the world uh that's the exploration pillar in D to me or any other system uh is exploring like what the world is like and and all of these things that kind of fall into place hex crawls really don't do anything for me but like learning more about like the groups and the factions that are in play or any of that stuff is really where it it, it hits me in my happy place heck yeah uh, so Sybil then uses the device that Defcon brought on the trip to project a rudimentary hologram of a woman uh, named Dr. Alana McCarthy, who is recording a video journal as she works on a project for the Defense Department referred to as Zodiac. Through the course of the entries, events initially line up with the story that's commonly told. Zodiac was created as a threat assessment system to keep humanity safe, potentially to be used in off-world colonies as humanity sought to spread through the stars uh it began to work quickly and cleverly through crafted scenarios arriving at the decisions that maintained human society as best as it could after months of tests and data were returned they convinced the defense department to activate zodiac on a trial basis allowing it access to information in order to solve particularly difficult or complicated crises but things began to change as the scope of zodiac's work began to broaden uh, so while Dr. McCarthy was updating the AI's accesses and information, uh, she stumbled across a file named Project Aegis. Delving further in, she discovers that Aegis is meant to, as an ultimate defense of the human race. In it, Zodiac outlines several major tenets, specifically that humanity is the greatest danger, danger to itself, 
and that by existing on a global scale has managed to share information and find new enemies and quarrels among themselves. Zodiac extrapolates that spreading to new worlds would only lead to larger conflicts with colonies aligning against each other, potentially turning their own copies of Zodiac on each other. In order to prevent this from happening, Zodiac has made several resolutions. Space travel must cease immediately, and humanity should be further segmented into large, easy-to-control and observe cities. The more technologies in play, the more effectively Zodiac can work, so it asserts to make technology indispensable to humans. Uh, so as she unveils this, uh, Dr. McCarthy r- resolves to shut Zodiac down and keep this from coming to fruition. Uh, however, the log ends there, uh, but obviously the group can kind of draw their own conclusions from that. Nice. I I do have something that I want to throw out there. So sure. I, I commend you for doing all of this world building before the game starts <laughs> uh, and putting a lot of thought into, like, not not just the world, but also the past that led up to the world that they are currently exploring. Because, like, you know, Kingdom Hearts creator Tetsuya Nomura, like... <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. That's you know how what I'm you talking? know it's going to be good. Yeah, like, okay. You know how I th- sometimes, like, I don't throw shade at Akira Toriyama, but I will throw shade at Tetsuya Nomura. <laughs> Because like, how dare you? I know, <laughs> I know, and I'm saying this as somebody that who is a fan of the Kingdom Hearts games for the most part. Uh, I say for the most part because I haven't really played any of the offshoots. I know what they're about though. I've seen the cutscenes. Like, I don't have to play the. the <laughs> I don't have to play the card game, okay? <laughs> like, I don't have to play the card game to know how the game works and what it's about. But. And, and this is this is something that I find like really obnoxious about um, just mainstream comics too. It's the same problem that I have with the Kingdom Hearts like continuity, which is that there are a lot of retcons. Like mm-hmm. they'll start with one canon idea, and then as the game progresses, like there are new ideas added to it that negate the ideas that were established at the beginning. Like and that annoys me the world builder um (laughs) because it's like you established in the first game that sora is the only one who can wield the keyblade and now we're in kingdom hearts 3 where there's like you know roughly 17 billion granted 16 billion of them are dead but 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 listen kirby's kirby's not allowed to wield the keyblade in smash because sora yeah (laughs) (laughs) pretty much yeah but like Still, it's like in the official like Kingdom Hearts canon that that was the rule that was set and that it was the rule that got smashed. And it's that sort of thing that is everywhere in mainstream comics and it's something that just annoys me to this day. I commend you for thinking not just about the world that you are building but also the events that led up to the world mm-hmm. that they are exploring and how that plays a part. That whole the whole story reminded me there was a, a very short lived uh, Rob Lowe comedy called The Closer where he was a TV lawyer who decided he was going to be a real lawyer mm-hmm. and there's literally a point where he's like but what if it wasn't <laughs> like that's all he would say they were like well it's not it's this but what if it wasn't mm-hmm. and you're like oh god I remember hearing about this the- it's it was an interesting yeah. show for sure but not yeah. uh, not classic by any means. Well, it's a Rob Lowe show. So. <laughs> uh, 
so with this revelation, they, it really puts the group at a crossroads, right? Yeah. So do they take this stranger and the video that DEFCON managed to uncover at their word? Or do they turn them over to Zodiac like they were instructed? Well, they were instructed about DEFCON, but they don't really have any instructions on her yet. But she's clearly part of this rogue element. Or do they just kind of ride along with the group and try to get more like concrete information? So for the purposes of the debate, uh, because this is a podcast and me going down six different rabbit holes is not really that interesting or compelling, uh, so I'm going to assume either option A or option C, right? So they're either going to believe her and the recording, or they're going to at least be interested enough to follow along and engage with the plot. Mm -hmm. They may be genuinely shocked at the portrayal that Zodiac seems to have engineered, Mm -hmm. or they may just want more information before they expose the group to their supreme artificial intelligence overlord either way uh before they can make a final decision among themselves an explosion rocks the building uh sybil unseals the room and rushes to a console where defcon or some other nameless npc uh reveals that the building is under attack not simply by anyone but by other zodiac agents Hmm. so the group recognizes all the people on camera as agents they've crossed paths with early in the story Mm -hmm. uh whether they came Though whether they came as a backup or some kind of failsafe uh, is anybody's guess. As always, I kind of like to leave this stuff open. They can take this into a straight-up fight if they want, or they can try to finesse their way around it. They might go out and try to lie to them and tell them that they're gathering information. They might try to mislead them by using a bunch of like tricks and stuff. But I think generally it's going to boil down to either conflict or some kind of skill challenge, right? Mm-hmm. This is going to be a challenging conflict. So one of my notes is that I think success with, with Consequence, which is a 7 through 9 in Powered by the Apocalypse stuff, mm-hmm. should very often play out as, hey, look, these people have the same training for you, training issue, and they knew you were going to do that. They knew like that's the standard operating procedure because they are so well matched to what you know. Uh, all of the agents are like coming from unique backgrounds, but they do all get put through a very general course by Zodiac as like, hey, this is how you need to behave in this scenario. I think that I would just kind of follow the skill system, skill challenge system that I talked about in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I might cut the failures a little tighter uh, because this is a much more evenly matched uh, contest. Mm-hmm. If it's a literal like straight up fight like i'm gonna definitely try to keep the group on their toes as the other group kind of sets each other up because they are built to work as a team too like that's the whole reason that zodiac builds these small units of agents gotcha but once that fight is completed or you know skill challenge whatever that looks like uh sybil will uh secret the group away uh with the small crew that she has in the building uh on to meet up with more of typhon and that's where we would end that session. Gotcha. Now that I'm a little bit more familiar with uh, Powered by the Apocalypse game systems. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, you had mentioned maybe adjusting the, um, maybe not necessarily the challenge ratings, but like the, is it like the options that they could do? So, uh, so what I was looking at, so and I have to pull my notes up. I've got them here. But... The, I said like a, a certain number of successes before a set number of failures. I think yeah. the first time that I really saw that was in uh, fourth edition D and D. Yeah. But I've yeah. definitely uh, tied that over to some other stuff. 
but I would actually remove one of those optional failures so that it, the tension is ratcheted up a little bit. Even the like top tier asphalt brigade guys are not like built to be this ruthless efficient team. Mm-hmm. Like because these these characters even if they're not like an opponent in a fight are meant to very strongly mirror the party. Like hey look like these guys are in a very effective unit like you guys are. Yeah. And they're not here to take any shit. Yeah. I immediately imagined Logan. Uh, if y'all <laughs> have seen that movie. Mm-hmm. I have not. Well, I won't spoil too much. D- just spoil or, it. It's I won't fine. spoil anything, but <laughs> in the beginning, Logan, Wolverine, mm-hmm. is fighting just like thugs, essentially. Mm-hmm. People trying to steal his car or whatever, dudes. right? Or just dudes. Just yeah. guys being dudes. Yeah. And again, spoilers for Logan, since Kelsey, I have your go ahead. There is a clone of Wolverine that comes back and has to fight Logan. And that's immediately where my mind it's handled a lot better than it sounds. Don't it, care. Yeah, it's actually it's actually probably the I would say the best Wolverine movie. The Wolverine wasn't terrible, but I think it's probably I didn't the mind best it, one. Actually. No, it, was, yeah. it wasn't bad. Yeah. Um I kind of wish that this podcast had a visual element to it because like I feel like the reason Hunter said that was because he saw me just bow saw the my expression head. just like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the clone of of Wolverine comes down. He's like the Wolverine that we all grew up on, right? Mm -hmm. The young, strapping Hugh Jackman, who's actually pretty well animated over, I think. But And then old Logan has to fight him, and he's like, how do I fight myself when he knows everything that I'm going to do? Mm -hmm. You know? And that's immediately what I thought of, where it's like, your options are avoid the fight, mutually assured destruction or you have to change and change quick adapt because yeah yeah, you have to adapt and be unpredictable which is not something that trained fighters are particularly good at so it it was it's really interesting i love mirror fights like that because i think that they really challenge your players in a way that um very rarely other things can do well and anytime you have a group that like specifically has has worked alongside or knows like oh that's that's a signature move like he's gonna do that right after there there it is right there like mm-hmm. it's like watching game film in sports like mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're looking for yeah. yep or getting real good at video games being like oh yep that, okay they just did their uh move set here they're now in their cooldown period now's the time to charge in and hi ya. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Anything else that you wanted to add to your setting, Joe? So I will say, like, I had, I literally was asking myself, I was like, okay, so but why, why, like, it's cyberpunk, and even in uh, stuff like Blade Runner and stuff, they really don't dig into, like, off-planet a lot. And I was like, okay, but why are we not doing that? Why am I not doing that in this setting? And I was like, this is why. And it was like, I was like, it ties perfectly in with the whole, like, oh no, we're going to keep you in these bubble cities where it's very, like, controlled and situational. It's like, oh, this this is why we don't want you to spread. Yeah. I do have a question for you, and this yeah. is something that I struggle with a lot sometimes. 
So I'm curious about your thoughts. So uh, because this is a world that you have put a lot of thought into and a lot of forethought <laughs> into regarding the past and how it's built up to the present moment, say you come across a new idea elsewhere and you want to try to and and you think to yourself, "Hey, wouldn't that be cool if this made it into my game?" Now, mm. do you think about that some more and find a way to incorporate it or is it such that the game that you have come up with is you feel you don't want to tinker with it too much because you have a particular vision of it in mind i think it's i think it's tough sometimes you can get uh so video games or even like tabletop games have a, an issue called feature bloat uh yeah. where you add add stuff and add stuff and add stuff because they're like oh wouldn't it be cool if you could do this wouldn't it be cool if you had psionics like you keep stacking stuff in and then it doesn't uh it kind of makes the whole game unwieldy yeah talking mm -hmm. to somebody dming in D D 5e <laughs> plot in uh plot in games can be the same way yeah um i mean i don't know there there are a couple uh large fantasy series that seem to have uh, gotten a lot longer than they were supposed to uh i mean i can look at george rr R. martin and uh, robert jordan to name a couple but uh you i think you really just kind of have to stress test it and and one thing that i've really learned at running in several different systems is you don't have to play to level 20 you don't have to play till the final care the final advance in a in a power by the apocalypse game yeah you play until your story's done and then you close the book now you it might be such that you still have unanswered questions and you maybe revisit the world but you know look at those other questions but i think realistically you look at the scope of your game and you're like okay does this play into the you know what's happening with these characters and if it doesn't you keep it on the back burner and maybe revisit it yeah mm -hmm. yeah i i will say i like to think about what is the main core of the story that i'm working with mm -hmm. and this idea that has suddenly come along, does that accentuate that core message or does it detract from it? It's fair. Yeah, um, that's how I tend to approach it. So there are like some things that have come along for like uh, my webcomic, The Legend of Jamie Roberts, that I'm like, wouldn't that be cool? No, that doesn't fit the central theme. <laughs> <laughs> it's that question where you're like, is this, I think I want to say it's a, it's a writing question, but it's like, is this the most interesting thing that the characters are doing or could be doing? Mm -hmm. No. Why aren't we, why aren't we looking at that? Yeah. And being able to really come up with a good why or else being like, you know what? Maybe we should explore that. Like mm -hmm. sit with that a bit. Hunter, what do you got? Ooh, Somebody else introed me? Yeah. I feel it honored. <laughs> so while I was writing through my game, I stopped and I looked back at it, and I really had to consider why I was writing it the way that I was. And one of the, I guess I can call it a flaw that I saw in my own game, is that the structure of this campaign required the players to be cooped up in a ship for a really long time yeah. and that required them to be on a very set path for a very long time mm. and 
So getting back into the Milky Way galaxy and uh, or or rather getting back into the, you know, Earth solar system, rather, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, how can I open up this campaign from here? Where what can I do Mm -hmm. to take it from this very linear to the meeting and back game and turn it into something that's a little bit more player central? without losing the aspect of the core elements of the story being told. And like the noob gamer that I am, I thought about Mass Effect, which is a a very linear story, at least the, you know, um, Mass Effects 1, 2, and 3 mm-hmm. are a very linear story at their core. And even though you can affect that story in a lot of different ways, it remains pretty much dead on where it's going. Yeah. Just a side note, a lot of people didn't like Andromeda because Andromeda was a lot more open, uh, a lot more similar to Dragon Age Inquisition, where it was a lot less linear and you could do a lot more things without really making any story advancement. But that's neither here nor there. A lot of those small questions were like, oh, is your ship going to be held together by bubblegum or duct tape? (laughs) Essentially, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I loved Andromeda, but that's beside the point. So I kind of brought that idea into this next leg of the campaign. I was like, <laughs> okay, so there is going to be a war based on what we you know, decided was going to happen in the last one, the assumptions that we made, mm-hmm. which were the negotiations devolved and there was no happy ending to mm-hmm. be had there. Mm-hmm. So our party had to sneak away and our party had to get back before things turned sour and they weren't able to warn anybody. So they get back, they tell the government what's going on. Here kicks off a series of, we'll call them side quests, but they're really like micro main quests Mm -hmm. leading into the next leg of the campaign. And I'm just going to go through these Mm -hmm. and I've made them as simple as I can uh, just A and B decisions and what benefits and drawbacks they bring. Yeah. Sure. Uh, is it sad that when you said micro main quest, my first thought was, oh, like Kingdom Hearts 3? Essentially, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you have main quests that are like little small snippets that all add up to a greater whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So the first one of these is the party comes back with a companion from the Bullyok. This is one of the Yaknos, mm-hmm. the guy that essentially told them, hey, I'm going to help you get out of here. We made some adjustment to your ship, and he was their lore dump guy mm-hmm. uh, when they were flying around in the last leg, yeah. right? The government wants to experiment on this person. Not their baby. They're about to go to war with this species of alien life that they have never met before, and they're like, we don't even know what these things are weak to. We don't know where their internal organs are. We don't know how they operate. We want to experiment and dissect this thing. And so the first decision, I think, is a pretty easy one for the party to make, because I imagine they'll have grown attached to this person, Mm -hmm. is either give up this Yaknos agent or protect the Yaknos agent. And if they protect the Yaknos agent, then they're able to get information about military tactics and they gain a friend, an NPC, to help them in the coming fight, right? Yeah. But if they give the Bullyok up, then they're able to learn information about the internal anatomy and the enviro suits that the Bullyok wear, resulting in benefits to combat checks whenever they encounter them. They're able to target things more efficiently, right? Mm -hmm. 
so that's the first one and it i i think it's sufficiently heavy to bring in this next leg of the campaign because it's like oh oh we're getting into those kinds of stories that we're going to need to tell yeah this is where stuff is going to get spicy exactly i mean i hate quoting a bethesda game but war war never changes you know it's always going to be dark it's going to be grimy it's going to be difficult Mm -hmm. so this is really the tone setter decision that you don't really need to do anything for it's just presented to you and it's like you can't save them both essentially right the next mini my uh, mini main quest is going to be a government worker is like oh shit i need to get this information to the public and starts trying to run away with it and the party can either stop them or let them go if they stop them the government will be like hey as a thank you here's some spec ops gear you can either get a piece of armor or a weapon as recompense for stopping this leak and allowing us to maintain control of the situation as governments do Mm -hmm. if the group either fails to stop the leak or they allow them to escape it will cause a splinter group called the starfinders who are like a um essentially like a non-violent terrorist organization okay they basically just help smuggle people from planet to planet and pull off minor heists but they they don't really kill people So the Starfinders will be like, this is a human rights violation, keeping, you know, the information of a coming possibly genocidal war from the people, right? And they're going to hold a fueling station at Jupiter hostage until something happens. I haven't decided that part yet, but, you know, they'll they'll hold it hostage and they'll make demands. Okay. Alternatively, there will be a contingent of citizens who run in to enlist to defend their home system, Mm -hmm. right? Because in any declaration of war, there's going to be a contingent of people who are like, I want to go fight, right? Yeah. This will kick off a, I I call it a secret quest, right? That only happens if they fail to stop the leak. They'll have to go and they'll have to wrest the fueling station away from the grip of the Starfinders. Now, this one is broken down pretty simply into a violent and nonviolent option, Mm. right? If they go in and they just kill everybody and take the station back by force, then they're able to get the equipment and ships that are left behind, and the Starfinders use really fast, really stealthy fighters, Mm -hmm. and it'll essentially allow them to get better information and uh, pull off stealth missions a little bit easier later down the line because they'll have access to ships with that specialization, Mm -hmm. right? If they defeat them non-violently or they're able to parlay with them, the Starfinders will agree to assist... Uh, in the coming conflict rather than try to hold everything up like they'll meet somewhere in the middle they'll compromise they'll essentially in that case not provide like ships or manpower but they'll provide smuggling lines and a large group of people to support those supply lines this will allow each party member to gain an additional 10 xp in the genesis system okay right it's not going to help them much in combat but it might give them a new talent or skill point yeah i was about to say 10 sounds significant question mark? it's pretty significant in this one okay but i i think it's pretty justified because this can only happen in one way they can only reach this quest in one way and this is off type for a lot of parties you know yeah. like because if they kill one person in that group mm-hmm. the rest of them are going to take no prisoners essentially right mm-hmm. so it's a pass fail kind of thing it's a lot harder to get it done non-violently as is typical in a lot of RPGs. 
the next event that will happen on the timeline is a scouting party will arrive sooner than expected, like way sooner than expected, mm-hmm. um, introducing the group to war mechanics, which is a mechanic that I'm working on. Uh, essentially, they build a small fleet with each of them manning a different ship and providing different bonuses to that ship. Mm-hmm. And then those ships all go into a battlefield together and act as essentially player characters. And the player characters control the ship moving around the the board, right? Mm. And you build your party based on a number of points that you have in each ship, depending on how strong it is, is worth a different number of points, right? Mm. So like a full frigate that holds other ships inside of it will be a lot of points, but it'll also come with a lot of benefits, like really good guns and shields. But smaller Mm. fighters might not be as many points, but they're also not going to do as much damage. They'll let you move around a lot faster and be harder to hit. So they're each going to have their benefits and drawbacks based on the points that you spend on them. I dig it. Okay. And this is the one where the party is either able to defeat the party entirely or allow one or more ships to escape. And this is one where there's really no net loss possible because if any of the ships escape, they're going to essentially trade information about one another. So there will be a net zero there because the Bullyock will have information on the humans and the humans will have information on the Bullyock battle tactics and ships and things like that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if they destroy the entirety of the scouting party, then they're able to hold exclusive rights to information on the enemy. And in the coming battles, when there are more war-style battles like this one was then they're going to get additional bonuses because they have information the enemy doesn't. Mm -hmm. They're essentially one step ahead. Two more quests. I'll try to make these quick because I know this is a little droning. (laughs) You're good. A mining colony on Neptune, because of the increased desire for weapons manufacturing, is going to have a fault in its system, causing a gas leak from the Neptune atmosphere and causing the robot workers essentially the automated workers to go haywire and start attacking miners there so the party is tasked to go in and either destroy the workforce so they don't hurt anybody and seal the leak or get in and shut down the ai system that's running them mm-hmm. so what this is going to do is either the party destroys half or more of the robots In which case, it'll dramatically slow down weapons production, meaning that they're going to have less access to ships in wartime battles, and it'll effectively lower their ability to have more ships on the field. Hmm. But they're going to get a free ship or weapon upgrade because they have access to raw materials to do so. Right. Right? Or if they're able to keep half or more of the robots intact then Nepium, which is the element that they use for weapons manufacturing, is going to roll out to predictions or better, allowing higher number of ships to be used in those war-style combats. But they're not going to have access to the raw materials to upgrade things. So there's a benefit either way. It just depends on how they decide to go about it. Mm -hmm. Finally, as with any war, there's going to be protests. Um... I want to take a moment here (laughs) and say that I had this kind of planned out before a lot of the things that are going on in the real world. Yeah. Uh, So this is in no way meant to reflect things that are going on in the real world. Uh, 
I'll lay it out there. I'm discussing the Russian-Ukraine conflict going on right now. Well, going on as of this recording. Who knows? As of this recording. uh, Goes without saying, support the people of Ukraine however you can. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the story. Essentially, there's a contingent of people that are like, hey, the government's not actually going to protect us. We need to take control, and this is our best opportunity. There are two options here. Deal with them violently or deal with them nonviolently. I feel really weird talking about this because the more I talk about it, the more I just have flashbacks, man. Yeah. (laughs) If the party decides to deal with them violently, um, some people will refuse to assist a violent government, reducing their combat effectiveness because they don't have the right amount of people. And essentially, right. this is going to add a setback die to any checks that they make in wartime combats. So these are the ones where they select the ships. If they deal with them nonviolently, which is the best option, <laughs> the people will continue to enlist at a regular rate. There will be no change in group combat, but there will be fewer available ships because more resources will go to training and outfitting people than to building ships. Mm-hmm. So it's either you're worse at what you do, but you have the ships to do it, or you don't have the ships to do it, but you have the correctly trained and number of people. Yeah. Whew, moving off of that yeah. awkward point. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will throw this out there. Um, I do appreciate that you not only think about like the either-or choices, but you also think of the consequences of those either-or choices mm. and their pros and mm. cons. Because that's... That's something I feel like more game masters should keep in mind. Like, yeah, there's this consequence of a particular choice. How is that going to play out both the good and the bad and potentially the neutral? What's that going Mm -hmm. to look like? Yeah, and it can be very difficult to keep track of things like this, Mm -hmm. which is why I kept it essentially to very broad two-choice options. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if I'm really broad with it, like either violent or nonviolent, it's pretty easy to say, okay, you were violent, therefore you took the violent path. That's not Mm -hmm. necessarily a judgment on the party. Mm -hmm. And it makes it a lot easier for me to keep track of things like that because I'm like, there's not a lot of nuance here. You were or weren't, and Mm -hmm. so you do or don't. You're also dealing with an intergalactic war. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's a it's that binary choice. Like it's not a exactly. Well, but we are somewhere in the middle, kind of. No, like you you kill people, it, it happened. Yeah, gray areas are my worst enemy. I am terrible at dealing with them. <laughs> uh, so I tried to keep it black and white wherever possible. Obviously, if this was a, a real world situation, there's a lot more gray area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> for the sake of this game. Yeah, for the sake of the game and keeping the mechanics simple and easy to track, especially since you're dealing with who knows how many player characters. Exactly. So throughout these quests, the party will have opportunities to meet and gain NPC companions. So these are going to be the uh, Yaknos fighter that came with them from Orpheus 9. This will be, uh, you know, the government leak Mm -hmm. if they let him go or or her. I haven't decided. Mm -hmm. Um 
if they let the government leak go, however they identify, that person can be an underground resource for them. The leader of the Starfinders, mm-hmm. uh, maybe they capture a prisoner from the scouting party, you know, uh, the head miner, or maybe even the AI from the mining colony can become NPC companions that help them in different ways, or maybe even join them on their ships in these wartime battles that we have built out, granting them different benefits. So there are, all not always in the moral good, as we would call it, mm-hmm. uh, options to get more resources than just what's granted by the GM. Mm-hmm. Uh, creating allies is paramount to this game. You can see the Mass Effect inspiration here. <laughs> Your, yeah. your companions are going to make or break this whole scenario. Mm-hmm. But even if you go through the entire thing and gain zero NPC companions, kill the AI, you let the Yaknos go to in for, uh, for testing and dissection, yeah. you know, however you decide to run it, you can still win the day because you are the PCs. It's just going to be a hell of a lot easier if you keep people around that can help you out. Oh, heck mm-hmm. yeah. So this arc is going to come to a close with the advance party of the Armada coming through and taking Pluto. And this is, I, I've talked about it a few times on the show, this is one of those events that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, the party has no reason to go to Pluto. Mm-hmm. It's unlikely that they will be there. It's not even a real so, planet, guys. It's not even a real planet anymore. Come on, y'all. This, this hurts me to my soul. <laughs> but Pluto is going to become the staging area for this invasion. This is, you know, the Bullock landing on the beaches of Normandy, but they won quick. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be the cliffhanger with which we move into the next arc of the campaign, which is going to be the first huge conflict that is going to probably span the galaxy before the main armada gets here and we get into our final battle. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that this one's going to run out. Honestly, this... Okay, so I just need to say this about planning this one. Sometimes, as a GM, I'll get into a state where I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this next leg. Mm-hmm. Thus my preface at the start, where I was like, how the hell do I open this up to the players? When I actually sat down to write this and I got that little starting point that, okay, I'm going to open it up. I'm going to branch out a little bit. I'm going to give them binary options. I had this all written down in five minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I just, I got in a groove and I was like, oh, and then this, and then this, and then this. Mm-hmm. And then I looked it back and I read it back over and I was like, this feels good. Mm-hmm. Like this just worked. Yeah. When you hit that stride, it's just so much... And it's I'm very impressed because you your arc is definitely gonna like it covers a lot more like stuff and sessions to me uh, than like what I had written, uh, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yeah, I always have thought about campaigns as a series of one shots linked by dialogue, mm-hmm. right? Okay, yeah. So you could think of it like a string of Christmas lights, right? If you plan the colors along the way, like if it's red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, whatever it is, right? As long as you're able to get them to those other lights, you're going to have a full string. Yeah. I come up with really weird metaphors. I'm sorry. But (laughs) so I essentially looked at all of these as, okay, these are going to be six different one shot campaigns that are strung together by dialogue in between. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I got I gotta ask. I know you're working on it, so I'm not gonna drill you for questions. Uh, I am interested to see how the the ship to ship combat plays out. Yeah. Um, are you are you taking inspiration from the Star Wars stuff? Or are you gonna like kind of scrap it and do your own thing? I do not know the Star Wars stuff. So the way okay, so a little bit of the inspiration comes from a D and D campaign that I was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, the uh, my progenitor DM, the guy who got me into the hobby, mm-hmm. did a combat for us one time where a city was besieged by undead. And we essentially didn't play as player characters. We placed ourselves with units of troops. Mm -hmm. And then we had two or three units of troops with different skills that we were in control of versus the horde, right? Right. And so I took basic inspiration from that where I'm like, okay, instead of a troop that you're in charge of, you are on a ship. You have a class of ship, which is going to have its own stats, and then you, as a player, provide a certain buff based on the skills and talents that you have. Mm-hmm. So let's just say your player is particularly good at shooting things, right? Or you're, uh, you know, in Genesis and in the Star Wars Edge of the Empire system, mm-hmm. there's the gunnery skill, which is specifically mounted weapons. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're really, really good at that. Well, for every rank you have in that skill, you're going to add a boost die to your roll, okay. right? Whenever you're attacking, but you're not really going to contribute anything to the speed or armor of your ship. In right. That it regard, is what it is. Right. If you're a pilot, however, you might boost the speed of your ship because you can push it to its limits. You know how to run this ship unlike anybody else. If you're a mechanic or an engineer, you might be able to fix up the ship, provide it the ability to heal, or even just boost its shields beyond normal capacity. So that's the way that it would work on a player-to-player level. Mm-hmm. When it comes to picking the like the point numbers of ships, basically the way that I, I did it is I have uh, five classes of ships that I've built. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is going to be the frigates, which I would imagine is probably like five points. If I'm going to assign an arbitrary number to it and each player character brings two points to the table, right? So let's just say we have a party of four, because I think that's what we've been assuming for this, uh, these campaign buildings. Yes. You have a party of four. So you have eight points to work with. As a GM, I would probably say for each NPC companion that you've managed to bring over to your side and convince to join you in these battles, you have an additional point, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, like, shimmy around based on how they made their side quest decisions and what materials they have on hand, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just say they have zero NPC companions. So they only have eight points. Okay. There's, we'll just call them small, medium, and large ships. You have small ships, which are your X-Wings or your A-Wings in Star Wars. These are either really fast with pretty low firepower or just kind of balanced overall, right? Those are each going to be worth one point, right? Okay. Uh, and maybe they'll only fit two or three people in this world. I haven't really gone through and designed the ships fully, uh, just their classifications, right? Okay. And then you have ones that are a little bit heavier. These are your troop transports, your bombers, and your shield ships, which are ones that I kind of made specifically for this world that just kind of project plasma shields so they mm-hmm. can provide essentially barricades for your ships to hide behind before you move them out, Uh right? Those are each going to be worth two or three points, 
right? Because their value is a lot higher on the battlefield. They carry more people. And then you've got your frigate, which is worth five. So if you have a party of four, what it might look like is you bring a frigate and three X-Wings for mm. Star Wars, right? Okay. Three fighters and a really big boy. You're not going to have a lot of speed. If your fighters go down, you're not really going to be able to deal with small bombers getting in your space, right? But that's a risk you need to take. That's a gamble you need to make in order to kind of play the field in this regard. Okay. So, and this is me. This is two, I have two questions and then I'll, I'll let it go. Uh, so one, have you considered instead of them just being like a single fighter, like a small wing, and basically like they whoever is in charge of that wing would be like the rogue leader or whatever you want to call it. We'll, we'll continue. To yeah, like a squadron of fighters. Yeah, um, I've played with the idea, but I haven't fully explored it. Um, it would it wouldn't really change too much mechanically at the end of the day. I think it's a little more on. I think it just. I was just thinking in in grand yeah. scheme of theme. Like, if you mm -hmm. have a frigate, like, they're not likely to launch three fighters. They're probably, I mean, yeah. pick pick your sci-fi medium of choice. Like, generally, they're sending, like, fighter after fighter after fighter out, out of the bay. Aesthetically, it would make a lot more sense. And that's probably what I'd go with um, if I actually sat down and built out this mechanic. I, I would go with probably, I don't know, groups of five or ten, even. Adjust the health scores a little bit. It's all relative. I think that could also be an artificial, uh, like, representation of your health is, like, losing yeah. wingmen. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for sharing the updates to your campaigns. Heck yes. Thank you. As, uh every time I'm, like, imagining what kind of player I would want to put into these worlds. And I'm mm -hmm. like, stop. Stop doing that. You've got too much on your plate. That nonsense. <laughs> Speaking mm -hmm. of... <laughs> Speaking of putting players into worlds, guys, guys, do you know what I'm about to talk about? I think I know what you're about to talk about. Being that this is the season finale for season two, it means we're about to move into our off season, which means we're going to take a break. You're never going to hear from us again. Radio silence. God bless you all. <laughs> Until probably around mid-April, when we are going to be launching a limited run actual play uh, set in the urban shadows powered by the apocalypse system. Heck yeah. It's going to be fun. It's going to be GM'd by our very own Joe. You know it. And we're also going to have two <laughs> former guests playing in the show. Joe Frioli, which is never going to get confusing at all. It definitely hasn't already. But Joe Frioli from Raw and Order. And we're going to be featuring Sabrina Rao, who actually was the person who kicked off season two. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's going to be super exciting. Uh, we've already got the ball rolling on it. We've got our characters made, and we just need to record and edit episode one. We can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, so be sure to keep an eye out for that after this episode is released. Yeah. Uh, again, that should be releasing mid to late April, just depending on production time. Y'all, I am so unreasonably excited. <laughs> the group that, th that these players have put together for you, uh, I cannot wait to introduce you to because it it's priceless. I, I'm trying really, really hard not to spoil <laughs> anything, and yet... Oh. <laughs> like, I'm trying really uh. hard. 
But with all that said and done and the plugs out of the way, be sure to give us a follow on Twitter. Uh, leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Play. Apple Play? iTunes? I think they're the Apple same podcasts. thing. Apple Podcasts. Uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, give us a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. You're going to hear that again in the outro voiceover, but I want to tell you anyway. Yes. It's the end of season two. It's been so exciting to record this show and to present it to all of you. Uh, Joe, Kelsey, and I send our, our heartfelt thanks for all of the engagement and support for this show. Mm. Um, thank you, listeners, very much. And we will not see you in two weeks. We'll see you when the AP comes out. Keep an eye on our Twitter. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Fourth Leg. If you enjoyed it, learned something, or just think we're neat, be sure to drop a five-star rating on iTunes and on Spotify. While you're there, be sure to catch up on all of our previous content. Who knows? you might just learn something new. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at The Fourth Leg for links to our personal accounts and updates on the show. If you'd like to get in contact with us or leave us any questions, email thefourthlegpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Record, and we can go ahead and... We are recording. Sync audio. What are you whining about? Because it's cold, Dan. This Come is, on up. This is going to be a beautiful post oh, clip. Oh, I know what's happening. Oh, it's dinner the time. The cat is sitting on the top stair, and he's scared to come up. Oh. Hold on. He's a, mean, me... he's a mean kitty. Yeah, yeah. Get off of the top steps! Yeah, what kind of asshole just hangs out at the top step? The cat asshole. The cats. The cat asshole. Cats hang out at the top stair. <laughs> oh, you wanted to be here? Well, too bad, fucker. Sorry. I was here first. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly what was happening. The cat was sitting on the top stair, staring daggers at the dog. Oh. And he was whining at me because he couldn't come upstairs with the cat there because she would bat it. That was literally that was literally the pet equivalent of Dad, tell him to stop. You know, no, yeah, quite literally. That is exactly what it is. Mom said it's my turn on the top stair. <laughs> Mm-hmm.